took a break from our regular series uh, to, to cover some uh, Christmas stories, but we're getting back this morning into our study of the Old Testament using the New Testament. Hebrews 11 is our guide. Uh, I learned in preaching class back in seminary that it's always good to start the sermon with like a, an attention getter or a hook of some sort, right? Um, so this morning, the sermon is about Moses. Now that alone should be enough, right? In fact, I should say that and you should be like, yeah! Uh, so I'll say it again. This morning the sermon is about Moses. That should be it, right? But, but because I'm afraid of my professors, I actually prepared an introduction just in case that didn't do it for you, okay? <laughs> We're going to be with Moses for four weeks and he's going to be coaching us on our faith. But listen, Moses is one of the most famous and recognizable and iconic people, not just in the Old Testament, but in all of humanity around the world. His story is told, he is remembered, and um, it can be seen in how he is remembered. For example, you know that you've arrived when they start putting you in paintings. Check this painting out of Moses. Look at that. How'd you like that to be you one day after you've gone on, right? They put, they put me in paintings and it's like lightning is striking me. That's how or, you know you've arrived when they start uh, putting you in stained glass windows. Check this out. Like, hey, do you think any of us really have a chance after we die of one day being in a stained glass picture? No, you probably don't. And it doesn't matter how cool you think you are, you're probably not going to end up in stained glass one day. But Moses is. Uh, you know that you are a somebody when Michelangelo does a sculpture of you, right? Check this out. This is Moses, uh, or at least what they thought he might be like. There's Moses. Uh, or, you know that you've really become a somebody when they put you in the movies, right? Moses has been in the movies. There he is. Huh? There he is. But you really aren't sure that your, your legacy will survive generation to generation until they make a Lego character out of you. <laughs> Moses is remembered in so many ways by so many generations it's almost like we do view him as being made of granite. And, and the danger is that we can begin to see him differently than he's reported biblically. What we're going to see over the next four weeks is Moses is 100% human and nothing more. Um, you're not going to be impressed really by Moses. In fact, you're going to find him to be just as fearful and weak and frail and, and divided and, as you. Um, but what's going to impress you is what God does through his faith. It's going to give you hope that when you wake up tomorrow morning and put one foot in front of the other spiritually and you walk with Christ, he's going to do astonishing things through you. Uh, Moses is a man, but he's going to coach us on faith. And this morning we're going to cover how his faith began. And his faith began like everyone else's faith began. Let's pray, and then we will get into the story of Moses. Father, we praise you that you've given us reports of these people who are just people. Uh, but in them and their lives, we see how you relate to humanity. And in them, we learn what it means to walk by faith. So as we spend the next four weeks with Moses, Lord, grow us in faith. Lord, show us how you deal with us and how you interact with us and what you want to do through us and make it clear what it means to have faith in you. Uh, Lord, bless this study and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, get your Bibles, open them up to Exodus 
chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. In addition to Exodus, you're also going to want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Just kind of keep a place marker there because we're going to spend the first part of the sermon in Exodus and then we'll skip ahead uh, at one point to Hebrews. So Exodus chapter 1 and then Hebrews chapter 11. And um, you don't have to be there right now, but I'm going to read to you some segue verses from, uh, from the book of Hebrews that get us from Joseph to Moses. Okay, so in Hebrews eleven twenty one, 21, just listen as I read, it says this. Um, it says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. So we're closing the chapter of Joseph as we begin the chapter of Moses. And as you're in Exodus chapter 1, just kind of peek at the, the last few verses of Genesis right there. And let me read them to you. It concludes the story of Joseph, which we spent uh, three weeks covering. Um, in uh, Genesis 50 and verse 22, it says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Um, and then looking down to verse 24, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but get this, God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Joseph was remembering the promise that God made to Abraham. How your people will be enslaved for 450 years in this, in this land. But then I will come and deliver them. Joseph believed that. And he told these people it was going to happen. Verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. Listen, by, by faith, Joseph told these people about something that was going to happen 350 years down the road. Now, would you think I was a little kooky if I said, get out your iPhone, and I want you to put something on the calendar for me, all right? Uh, on your calendar, I want you to go to the year 2363, and, uh, and I want you to move my grave. So just go ahead and write that down, and then when that day comes, just go ahead and do that. Would you be like, what? What are you, why are you telling me to put something on the calendar 350 years away? That's basically what Joseph was doing. God's going to come. He's going to deliver. I want to go with the people when God comes. That's faith. That's faith. That's not sight. That's faith. So Joseph's story, which was so amazing, ends with faith. And Moses' story begins. Now it's important that we understand now that Exodus isn't this new thing that God decided to do. Exodus is the continuation of what God already started in Genesis. Okay, and each person in the Old Testament we're finding is not this disjointed random collection of like folklore. It's like uh, each person is like a bulb screwed into a sign that's one giant blinking arrow pointing at Christ. We're trying to see how all of those different stories come together to point to Christ. So moving from Joseph, we now pick up Moses' story in Exodus chapter 2. It says this, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Um, we'll put this verse up on the screen, but Hebrews eleven twenty three talks first about the faith of Moses' parents. It says this, By faith Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful 
and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Jot this down, and then we'll talk about it. But Moses' faith, hey, he'd say this. He'd say, my faith began with my parents. Go ahead and write that down in your bulletin. If Moses was here giving his testimony, coaching us on faith, he'd say, it all began when my parents did some things for me. But we're going to see that there are certain things that his parents could do for him. There were certain things his parents could not do for him. It's reported as faith that they hid Moses. What are they doing hiding him? Well, a little background. The Pharaoh was afraid of a slave uprising among the, the Israelite people. And so he decided to get harsh with them, and then he decided to try and control them, and then he decided to issue an order that every boy who was born would be thrown into the Nile. Um, and this was not a popular edict, and who knows how long it lasted, but this was the world Moses was born into. He was born into a world that was at war with God's promise to use the Israelites to bring a Messiah into the world. Hey, listen, make no mistake. This isn't just a history lesson. Okay, the Pharaoh was opposing God's plan to get your Messiah into the world. Your salvation is in jeopardy at this edict unless God does something to keep his promise. And so his parents took action. They hid him for three months. That's an interesting game of hide and seek. Like, there's a lot of things that you can hide that are pretty easy to hide. But how do you hide a baby for three months? I don't know. I was thinking about that. Like, how would they do it? Would they, would they like, hide him in plain sight? Like, dress him all up like a girl? <laughs> like, only pink. We're only going to put him in pink outfits, like, with, like, a giant bow on his head. And, uh, oh, he, she's so adorable. Yes, she is, isn't she? She's a little princess. Uh, I don't know. Would they change the diaper real fast so that nobody could get it? Because, oh, it's just a girl. She's a princess. Put her in little Cinderella jammies. I don't know. But somehow, for three months, they kept Moses hidden. And why did they do it? Well, the Bible says that they saw he was a, he was a beautiful child. Uh, she saw that he was a fine child. All right, now don't misread that. It's not like, well, he's a cute one. Okay. So because he's one of our better-looking children, we're not going to throw it. That's not what it, all right, that's not what it means. Um, in Acts, when Stephen is giving his speech, um, it reports in Acts 7 that God had a special affection on this child. So he was a loved child, not in the eyes of the parents, but the Lord somehow revealed to his parents that there was a special purpose for this child, which is why it was by faith that they chose to hide him for those first three months. And God honored that and God applauded that. So Moses' parents had faith that the Lord was doing something. And because of it, they shielded and protected their child from this evil world. All right, so jot this down. What did my parents do for me? Well, you know, they protected me from harm. You could fill that in. My parents, by faith, they protected me from harm. And every Christian parent wants to, to the best of our ability, we want to shield our children from the evil and the danger and the corruption of the world. And we're, we're charged by God to do our very best to bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And listen, whether your parents were Christian and raised you Christian or not, God used them in some way to protect you from harm. All right, I don't know, I don't know what grade you would give your parents. I don't know how you would rank them. Maybe you feel like, you know, you didn't get the best set of parents. They were weird. They were overprotective. They embarrassed you all the time. Maybe you're like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't too crazy about them. Uh, well, to just give you a little perspective, at least you didn't have the parents who put their kids in this shirt. It says our get-along shirt. 
for parents looking for a way, a tool to get your younger children to get along, Lauren and I are going to try that one. You might want to try that one with your kids too. But hey, thankfully you didn't have those parents, right? And uh, whatever opinion you have about how your parents did, listen, the truth is God did use them to protect you from many things. And if you were blessed with a Christian upbringing, hey, you should be grateful that you had that blessing, okay? Even if you weren't blessed with a Christian upbringing, you know what? God still used those parents to provide for you and to give you um, a basic uh, upbringing and to keep you free from harm. And hey, they protected me from harm. And um, we must protect our children from harm to the best of our ability. But here's the thing. Then they had to release me. You could write that down. Then they had to release me. And reading on in Exodus 2, verse 3, said, when she could hide him no longer. Just, just put yourself in her place. They're finding out. It, word's getting out. They're going to come soon. I've got to do this. When she could hide him no longer, she had to do the unthinkable. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. They had to release me. This is so picturesque of what every parent has to do at some point. Just imagine her going down and she makes this kind of waterproof basket and to the very end does her very best to even give him that last piece of protection and puts him among the reeds, not sending him out into the current. And, um, and then she just had to walk away. She just had to let go and walk away. And every parent has to release their children into the sinful, broken, dangerous, frightening world. It's God's design. They had to release me. We're not going to probably walk down to a river and like push our kid in, but you know, you're going to walk her down the aisle or you're going to drop him off at college or you're going to fill up the moving truck and then off they go. But the point, the day comes when we have to release our children into the world. And listen, the longer we try and hold on to parent our grown-up children the way that we did all along, it's going to get strained. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get messy because it's not the way God designed it. You have to reach a point where you let go and you release them into the watch, care, and protection of God Almighty. Every parent will go down to the river and let go. And then we understand our limitations as parents. My faith began with my parents. They protected me from harm. Then they had to release me. Um, and third, because only God could save me. Only God could save me. Exodus 2, verse 5 says, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going, what is it? It's a basket. What's in there? Go find it. And she opens it up, and it's just this little crying baby sniffling. And, oh, can you picture how her heart was gripped? And... She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, that's Moses' sister, said to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And this story is great. 
Just think about it. What, what is it? What is it? Oh, it's a baby. And there's all these young girls around. Let me hold it. Don't let me hold it. Oh it's, a, oh, it's one of those Hebrew babies. Obviously, they were not a big fan of her father's edict, right? Put it back. They didn't say any of that. They were like, oh, we're going to keep it. We're going to keep it. And uh, we don't have on record the conversation that happened later between the Pharaoh and his daughter, but it probably went a little something like this. I'm keeping it. And then the dad was like, oh, no, you're not. And then she's like, oh, yes, I am. And then he's like, I said, put it back. And she's like, oh, no, you didn't. Okay, this is a diva princess, all right? She gets what she wants. <laughs> but isn't it funny how God humiliates the Pharaoh? You want to make this order? You want to kill? Okay, okay, I'm going to use your own daughter to thwart your plans. How humiliating is that? And here she picks up Moses, the child that God's love was upon. His plan would unfold through this child. And after his mom had put him into the river and not there, the sister comes running, oh, mom, 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 I got you a job. What? I got you a job. Come on. What do you mean you got me a job? Brings her down to the river, and then, and then what happens? Uh, well, she's talking to Pharaoh's daughter, and it says in verse 9, And Pharaoh's daughter said to the mom, Take this child away, and I found this baby. Take this child that I found uh, and, uh, and nurse him. And uh, what I'll do is I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. What? What's your job? I'm a stay-at-home mom, but I get paid by Pharaoh. <laughs> Paycheck to Moses' mom from Pharaoh. Now, <laughs> the Pharaoh is paying for the deliverer of the Israelites to be raised. How funny is that? Hey, can God take care of our children? No, you're not saying it by faith. Hey, can God take care of our children better than we can? Depends on the child, right? <laughs> when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, so adopted, her, adopted him. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's a picturesque name. The name for Moses means kind of draw out. My faith began with my parents. They protected me from harm. They had to release, or they had to release me because only God can save me. And um, hey, our children and our junior hires and our high schoolers and even our college students, listen, in particular, I want you to hear this. Your parents can protect you from harm, and they can raise you the best that they knew how. And uh, when they release you, you're going to find out that there's limitations to what they could and could not do for you in your upbringing. And it doesn't matter how thoroughly your upbringing was. Listen, your parents cannot save you. All right? Nothing your parents did for you can ultimately save you. And just as parents, this is a wake-up call. We need to get to that point where we can take our hands off and, and don't harm your children by allowing them to think something you did for them saved them, whether it be baptism or religious training or bringing them up in the church. Never give your children the impression that what you did for them saved them. Always put them in the crisis. Listen, college students, listen, junior hires and children, you need a savior as badly as that baby in a basket in the river needed a savior. You are as helpless to save yourself 
as that baby was at the side of the river. And if God doesn't get away to come in and pick you up, you can't be saved. And if you don't understand the true condition of your soul, that God needs to save you, if you've never faced that, regardless of your upbringing, today's the day that you have to reckon with that. And God wants to save you. He can and He will save you. But if you think it's already been done in the past, somehow passively it happened to you, that's not biblical. They protected me from harm. They had to release me because only God could save me. And this drives Moses to a personal crisis of faith. You can write this down. My faith began with my parents, but then God drove me to a personal crisis of faith. Write that down. And his crisis of faith is recorded in chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, one day when Moses had grown up. So he's like, he's like 40 now, all right, which, which isn't really that old. All of you in your 40s, you could say amen. It's not really that old. He's, in, he's 40. Okay, but he's, he spent 40 years in the palace. Then he's going to spend 40 years in the wilderness alone like a, as a shepherd. Then he's going to come back and he's going to spend another 40 years uh, leading a bunch of grumbling whiners through the desert. Okay, so he's relatively young. Uh, when he had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Um, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen reports that Moses was aware somehow that God wanted him to be the deliverer for his people. So God was at work in Moses' heart to show him the purpose that God created him for. And in addition, God was creating in him a sense of identity, where he belongs. It says in verse 11, he, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and something in him snapped. And verse 12, he looked this way and that, seeing no one, and he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay, good decision or bad decision? Bad decisions. Like Moses is like, okay, God wants me to deliver the nation. Plan A, I'm going to assassinate him one by one and bury him in the sand. One down, a couple million to go. I'm just going to one at a time. This is like Black Ops Moses. I'm just going to sneak up behind him one at a time. Not a great plan. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why would you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Wow. Now, this story is interpreted for us in Hebrews chapter 11. So now's the time to turn in your Bibles ahead to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to draw the points of application and from Hebrews chapter 11. God drove Moses to a crisis of faith. The crisis of faith would cost Moses everything. And he had to make the decision. In Hebrews eleven twenty four, 24, the Bible reports favorably what Moses did. It says in 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, listen to the word, this is a good word, refused refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. There was a life, there was an identity, there was an opportunity that he refused to benefit from. Choosing rather, there's something else he picked, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. We see in Moses, listen, we see in Moses... A portrait of salvation. 
that every true Christian will emulate. What Moses did, I must do, or I'm not saved. As Moses left everything the world had to offer him behind to become a member of the community of God, so you must do, or you're not truly saved. He's now an example for us of what it means to be saved. God drove him to a personal crisis of faith, and God will drive you to a personal crisis of faith. Here's the first thing we see. You can write this down. Moses would say this. I had to make it clear. I am clearly one of his. Write that down. Crisis of faith. I want you to know I'm clearly not one of those. I am one of his. The way that he showed that is by leaving behind all that the palace had to offer. And listen, you got to get this. He had everything. He had everything the world could offer you. He was one of the best educated individuals in the world, spoke and wrote several languages, had the best house, had access to the finest women, the best food, transportation was never a problem. He had the political influence. He had the family pedigree. He had everything. Talk about riches. When King Tut's tomb was, was discovered, and this was a child pharaoh, uh, and so Moses would have enjoyed a comparable standard of living. Look at some of the things that they found in King Tut's tomb. This is the bed of, of King Tut the boy. So, like, Mo, And check out this other picture. The bed was made of gold. Like Moses' big boy bed was made of gold. Okay? And all the gold, the rest of the artifacts we'll put up there that were in the tomb, give us an idea of just how lavish the lifestyle of these pharaohs truly was. Moses, like, you hear those radio ads about, you got to get gold into your portfolio. Gold has never been higher. You got Hey, Moses only had gold in his portfolio. That's it. He had everything. He had everything the world could promise you. And he left it because he wanted to be known as clearly one of God's. Would Moses prove to be a man of faith when the crisis came? Would you prove to be a person of faith when the crisis comes? One of the indicators of whether or not you are truly a child of God is if you have forsaken all that the world has to offer you, the treasures of the earth, and begin to store up your treasures in heaven. I'm clearly one of his. Moses was literally pulled in two directions. He was a part of two worlds. His mom would have raised him in the short time she had to believe in. You know, here's the story of Adam and Eve, and here's Noah, and the fierce God judgment God is going to bring on the earth. But he made a promise to Abraham, and he said a blessing was going to come into the world. And he would have heard the story of Jacob wrestling with God, and he would have heard of the promises, and he would have heard of Joseph and how amazing he ruled in Egypt, and yet... And yet his faith that one day God would come and deliver the people. He would have heard all of that. Then he would have gone to religious school in, in Egypt. And he would have heard, your grandpa the Pharaoh is a God. And there are many other gods. God's in the river. God's on the land. God's in the sky. God's in the sun. God's in the moon. God's... And his head had to be spinning. And our, our youth, our, our teenagers and our children, you're, you're right there. You hear from your parents one thing. And you hear from the world another thing, and, and which is it going to be? 
And sadly, the world will tell you, well, you can just grab both. You can believe it all. But that's not what Moses' example shows us. You have to be clearly, unmistakably, blatantly, publicly one of his. All right, but I know that, you know, I, I think of our junior high students in particular, you know. Telling other people that you're a Christian or in high school or college, admitting, you know, to a professor that you're, you're a child of God, you're then numbered among those people, right? And, and let's face it, there are some other Christians out there, not like you, who are just strange. They're kind of weird and embarrassing, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to be with them and, and let other people know I'm one of them, right? Like the family of God could sometimes be an embarrassing family, and I don't know. I found a website that's uh, embarrassing family portraits. It's all of these embarrassing family photos. Check this out. Here's one of them. How'd you like to be in that family photo? <laughs> and, uh, and I think sometimes telling people you're a Christian is almost like putting on the sweater and standing next to those people. And you're like, I, I don't want to get in that picture. Or check out this next picture. This is a good one, too. That's, uh, I don't want to wear the suspenders. People are going to think I'm nerdy. Or, or here's the last one. I like this one a lot. That's, uh, that's a puppet. Check out that hair. I, if, I, if I tell them I'm a Christian, they're going to... Uh, it could do damage to my reputation. All right, I, I'm not going to deny it. There are some of the family of God out there, our distant cousins, who are very embarrassing and weird and strange. And Okay, but, but one of the most powerful things you can do for your friends is make your faith as natural as anything else in your life. Okay, you don't have to, like, get all Billy Graham on your friends. I've decided to tell you I've trusted Jesus. At the lunch table, I'm going to tell you. No, like, be you, but talk about Christ as naturally as you would talk about anything. And that's going to be powerful to the people around you. Moses shows us what it means to be clearly one of his he left the household of Pharaoh. You too must leave behind your allegiance and primary affiliation with the world and be counted among the saints of God. Here's the next one. I'm mistreated because of him. I'm clearly one of his. Crisis of faith. And I'm mistreated because of him. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, it says, Moses choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He picks mistreatment for what? With the people of God. I'm willing to suffer and sacrifice for Christ. And uh, some of the people who are playing a really good game at pretending to be a Christian, when you ask them to do something that will cost them something, that's when they show their hand. If they won't suffer or sacrifice for Christ, major red flag that they've truly made Christ their Lord. If they won't embarrass themselves by telling people they're Christian, if they won't tell people of the moral boundaries they've put in their life, if they won't, if they won't make those hard choices of what to and not to indulge in out of embarrassment, it's one indication that they may not be a true child of God. Because the true child of God is mistreated along with Christ. Moses willingly stepped into the community of faith and their struggles became his. And ask yourself this, what has Christ cost you? 
What have you left behind or sacrificed or let go of because of your allegiance to Christ? The answer is nothing. Well, it's a frightening place to be. Uh, there are people in this church uh, who have left behind jobs because their boss insisted that they compromise uh, morally. They've left the job. They've lost a paycheck for Christ. There are people in this room who have broken off long-standing intimate relationships with the person who they loved and who they may want to marry because that person did not share their faith with them. Christ came first. There are people who refused even a date because they, didn't want, they wanted to guard their heart against someone who did not share their faith in Christ. Uh, hey, what does faith in Christ cost you? Has it cost you financially? Has it cost you emotionally? Has it even cost you a, a friend who you had to sit down and confront over their moral choices? Hey, listen, as a brother in Christ, I just need to tell you what you are doing is dead wrong. And I don't know if anyone else is going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell it to you. All right, man to man, this is sin. Have you lost a friend? Have you even lost a night's sleep over what you've done for Christ? Because if you are living blatantly, if you're leave, living loudly in front of others, you're going to face mistreatment. And if you're always ducking and covering and, and trying to avoid that, if you're trying to be a secret service Christian, God's not honored by that. God drove me to a personal crisis of faith. Moses would say, I had to clearly be one of his. I was mistreated because of it. Here's the third one. I'm turning from sin as a result of this crisis of faith. I'm turning from sin. You can jot that down. In verse 25, it says, rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Fleeting pleasures. Scripture is honest about sin. It's fun. Sin is fun. Make a list of sins, and there's a whole lot of fun that happens because of it. But it's fleeting pleasures. It's pleasure now. Pain later, maybe even pain and suffering forever. But the Christian decides pain now, suffering now, pleasures forevermore at your right hand, right? If you want the pleasure now, the sin now, you'll forfeit your soul forever. And the Christians aren't perfect. We still sin, right? But, but we're loving sin less and less and less, and we're loving Christ more and more and more. And if those things are reversed, Right? Some of our college students, if you're trying to reason and, 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 and look at how I can get more sin into my life, you know, where's the threshold? How far do I have to go with this business? And how much will God just kind of look over? If you're trying to push back that line as far as it will go to justify as much of the world and, and elicit pleasures as you can, your heart's not right. But if you're loving sin less and less and less and trying to find out ways to give God more and more and more of yourself... Um, then the Lord is pleased. And you're showing that the crisis of faith is leading you in the right direction. Moses said, I'm clearly one of his. I'm mistreated because of him. I'm turning from sin, being our role model. Fourth, I'm motivated by eternal rewards. Uh, in verse 26, it says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He had quite an opportunity like on the one hand, he went into the, the storehouses and the treasure rooms of Egypt. And he's like, wow, look at all the gold. Look at all the jewels. Look at all the power. Look at all the women. Look at all the influence. Look at it all. Wow, that's impressive. And then it says he compared it to Christ. The word there is Messiah in the Greek, the anointed one. What did Moses know about Christ? Well, Jesus said that Moses wrote of me. Um, 
Stephen said in his, his speech that Moses told the people that God will raise up for you from among your own people a prophet like me. In other words, Moses was gifted with a vision ahead to the day that Christ would come. And on the mountain of transfiguration, right, when Jesus was about to burst into light and reveal himself to Peter, James, and John, he called for two heroes of the Old Testament to join him on that mountain. Who were they? Elijah and Moses. And somehow Moses saw ahead to Christ's day. It says that the rock that accompanied the Israelites was Christ. It was Christ that Moses turned around and saw. And he looked at all the treasures and every, the life that he could have had. And then he turned and saw Christ. And guess which was greater? You see, this is a lesson for us because he was motivated by eternal rewards, which the Bible says are found at the right hand of the Lord. You will fill me with joy in your presence, eternal pleasures at your right hand. And there's competing ambitions in our heart. You see, we're right there in that crisis of faith. Am I going to go after everything the world promises me and has for me, or am I going to follow Christ? And and you can't serve two masters. Here's some competing ambitions you can jot down. These are going to war for the allegiance, primary allegiance of your soul. Competing ambitions. First, are you, are you pursuing pleasure instead of Christ? Are you pursuing pleasure instead of Christ? That looks more fun. That looks more dangerous. That looks more scandalous. That looks more appealing than, than where Christ would lead me. Hey, are you pursuing pleasure instead? How about this? Are you pursuing stuff instead? Stuff. There's better, pricier, newer stuff over... The, now, now, having stuff is not sinful, right? Pleasure is something designed by God, but when stuff has you, uh, when pleasure is taking you away from following Christ, then it becomes a competing ambition. How about pursuing money instead? Money instead, the good life. Bigger raise, bigger bonus. Big, is it wrong to make money? No, you're commanded to provide for your household, right? Uh, but, but money can get you. Money can become your master. And he who loves money never has money enough. It will be an unending chase throughout your life. And the Bible says, love of money, man, you're going to pierce yourself with many griefs. If you turn and you see the money and you chase the money, the wind in your sail is the money. If Christ turns left and the money turns right, you follow the money. You can see it if it's competing with your Sunday mornings, if it's competing with your small group, if it's competing with your time with your family, everything that Christ would demand of you. Um, if your excuse is the next paycheck, the bigger bonus, that it's your master. And you can't serve both. Judas tried. Judas tried. And money makes an awful master. Pursuing pleasure, pursuing stuff, pursuing money. How about pursuing power instead? The status, the title, the influence, the power, the instead of Christ. And hey, this is a word for us. It, <laughs> if you're coming out of college or if you're in the prime of your career or if you're trying to consolidate your retirement and here you are, you're going this way. You're going toward the money. You're going toward the pleasure. You're going toward the power. You're going toward the status. You're leaving behind the very basic commitments that Christ would lay on you. Guess who you meet on the way back? Guess who you run into? You run into Moses head to head because he's coming back from that. And what does he say? He says, turn around. I was there. Where are you going? What are you going for? 
let me see what your salary would be. You should see my bedroom. That's all you're going after? Moses would not be impressed. And if the primary drive of your life is everything the world could offer you and your back is to Christ, Moses is telling you to turn around because he left it all behind because he knew it was greater to follow Christ. In fact, this is not just a portrait of you over time relinquishing the passions and pleasures of this world to be totally sold out to Christ. This is actually a portrait of an initial turning away of all that the world teaches and offers and says to the risen Lord and being saved. You see, this is a one-time crisis, and then you spend the rest of your life kind of doing one of these. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm going this. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. No, I'm not going to. All right, but there's the one-time crisis, which we would call salvation and conversion, where you are hit with the demand that Christ places on your life, and you do the turn away from all the world has to offer, the kingdom of the world, and your citizenship is transferred into the kingdom of heaven. That's called conversion, and it happens in a moment in time. You then begin to be motivated by eternal rewards. It's a powerful moment. It can happen when you're four. It can happen when you're 40. It can happen when you're 104. But we all wake up on one course. There has to be a turnaround moment where you hear the call of Christ, and you turn, and you are saved. Don't just think that Moses was one of those special individuals where God said, I'm going to ask you to give everything. All right, I'm going to ask you to give everything. You know, Adrian here, she's only going to have to give like half, okay? Bob over here, I'm going to ask, you know, he's going to have to give like, you know, two-thirds of everything in his life. But that's not the way it works. If you even want to be considered a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what it costs you? Do you know what it costs every one of us? We'll put it up on the screen, Luke 14, 33. Jesus says this, So therefore, any one of you, who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Does that mean I have to go home and sell everything on eBay? No. It's a statement about what happens here. Right in here, there's a moment in my life where I look at all that the world is promising me and teaching me and demanding of me. And then I look at Christ who says, take up your cross and follow me. And I make a decision. And that decision changes my eternity. I have to renounce everything. Christ at the moment of salvation demands your complete allegiance. And then you can't look back. But you will spend the rest of your life understanding what you gave up. And God will come into your house. He'll point to different things, different relationships, different decisions, different attachments. But there is a moment in time when your primary allegiance is declared, and that's called conversion. The Lord makes it clear. What Moses did in leaving the palace is what you must do. If you don't number yourself among God's people and forsake all that this world is promising you, you will not be saved. If you try and gain the whole world, you will forfeit your soul. The pleasure this world will deliver you, all that it will give to you, all that you enjoy on it, hey, enjoy it. This world is your heaven. It will never be better than what this world has given you. But for the believer, our heaven's coming. And we endure a lot in this life, right? For him. 
because this isn't our heaven. This isn't our home. We've made that choice at some point in our past. But the question is, have you made that decision? I like what John MacArthur said. He says, from the worldly standpoint, Moses was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from the spiritual standpoint, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. And I want to leave you with these three questions. These are going to come quickly. And they are geared as a tool to help you figure out where you stand with the Lord. But here's some questions for you. Question number one. Have you left your life of sin behind? Hey, is there a point at your past, in your past, where you turned from your life of sin toward the Lord Jesus Christ? I don't mean saying, I'm sorry for my oopses every now and then. I mean going before the Lord and saying, I'm sinful, broken, beyond repair, and I'm repenting. Repent means to turn. Have you turned from the life of sin? Second question, do you publicly declare your allegiance to Christ? Do you publicly declare your allegiance to Christ? This begins with baptism when you go public. And listen up, children in high schoolers, junior high, sixth grade, you can get baptized. Your parents can't call us. You've got to call us. Um, But have you gone public? Have you professed your faith and been baptized to show what God did to your soul? There's always a giant question mark over the heart of anybody who has not been baptized because it's the first thing Christ asks of his disciples. And and have you gone public and testified of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to show that it's your own? And third, are you willing to face ridicule for the sake of Christ? Have you drawn a line in the sand and said, I am one of his, I will not cross over. I will put boundaries up. I am primarily allied with Christ. Have you done that? And have you said, I don't care what they say about me. I don't care what they do to me. I care about Christ. Have you left your life of sin? Do you publicly declare your allegiance to Christ? Are you willing to face ridicule for the sake of Christ? Hey, listen, this morning, I want to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. If you've been raised in a Christian home, you need to hear this. If you've not been raised in a Christian home, you need to hear this. Only God can save you. And he only does it when you turn from your life of sin and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and then you publicly declare your faith in him. Hey, I want to give you a chance to put your faith in Christ this morning, right now. Let's all close our eyes and let's all bow our heads and let's go before the Lord together. Father, as we look to you, we understand that this story of Moses was written for us. It was written to show us something. And I think of all those who are here this morning who don't know where they stand with you. Lord, I think of all of our fourth and fifth grade students. I think of some of them who have been blessed with a Christian upbringing and yet they still stand in need of a savior. Pray for our middle school students who are faced with all of the social pressure of fitting in. Think of our high school students who are making life decisions, who are deciding where to point their entire existence, who are deciding who to spend the rest of their life with. I think of our college students who are making career choices and who are getting closer to picking that life partner. May they turn from the kingdom of the world. May they seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And may the evidence begin 
pile up in their lives, that they are indeed followers of the Lord Jesus. And for those this morning who are convicted, for those this morning who know they need a Savior, for those who you have made ready to receive Christ, Lord, I pray right now and I I ask that they would pray along with me in their own hearts. Father, I confess that I am a sinful person, that I deserve judgment. I confess that I need a Savior. And I repent and turn from my sin. I want eternal life. I want the reward of heaven. So I put my faith in Jesus, who died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. Wash me of my sin. Save me. Teach me to walk with you. Father, for those who prayed that, even for the first time, give them the assurance of salvation. Give them your Holy Spirit. Give them the ability to follow you and find out what pleases you. And bless them as they need courage to publicly live for you. And Lord, this is our prayer in the mighty name of Jesus, the Savior of Moses, the Savior of all who call upon Jesus, all who call upon the Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.